Hey, this is Kevin Murak, and you're listening to the Airborne Mind Show. everyone. This is Ms. Bahawk. Thank you so much for joining me today and welcome back to the show. Whether this is your first, second, 10th, or 30th episode, I appreciate you tuning in. Your time, your energy, your attention, and your ears mean the world to me. Without you listening, this show would not be where it is today. So once again, thank you. Before we get started, the biggest compliment that you can give is by leaving a review on iTunes. You have no idea how much that helps in terms of rankings, bringing more awareness to the show, and bringing on more interesting guests. So if you could take two or three minutes, not while you're driving, but take two or three minutes, go ahead, leave a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to head over to theairbornemind.com where you can check out some free resources and the full show notes there as well. Today's episode is brought to you by Revive RX. Revive RX has played a huge role in my recovery over the last six months or so. Um, if you are in the market for uh, a post-workout supplement or a protein supplement um, and you want something that's clean, that's effective, and that is simple, I highly recommend their products. I obviously use them myself. Um, I personally love the Recover formula in the strawberry flavor, and I take four scoops after my training sessions. If you want some education around, you know, is a protein supplement right for you? What's the difference between recover and rebuild? And honestly, just some good basic nutrition information. I shot a couple of videos with Marcus Philly that you can get on my site exclusively, theairbornemind.com. Um, and if you would like to get a 10% discount on RevivRx supplements, head over to RevivRx.com and enter the code MIZ10, M-I-Z-1-0. Once again, that's RevivRx.com, MIZ10. Today, my guest is Dr. Kevin Murak. He is a researcher and scientist actually a recommendation from Dr. Andy Galpin, who has been on this show. Um, he mentioned last time he was on how Kevin knows more about hypertrophy and concurrent training than, um, you know, he has studied, and this is kind of his specialty. So I had to hunt him down once I heard that. So we dig into what it's like for a younger scientist to be involved in research, um, where pretty much up until his whole career now has involved challenging dogma. You know, there's there's ideas that have been uh, become ingrained in the scientific world. Um, people have agendas. There's a lot going on. So the areas of study that Dr. Murak specializes in is hypertrophy, um, and we talk about why that is beneficial to the everyday person and, and not just the athlete. Um, and then we talk about concurrent training, which is essentially, you know, more training more than one modality at once. I think 
CrossFit. Um, and traditionally, it's known that concurrent training, um, you know, may inhibit hypertrophy. And so we dig into some of these misconceptions and some of these areas that Dr. Kevin has kind of unpacked over the years and, and really getting, um, you know, a lot of learning in this episode. You know, we talk about concurrent training, how it may not inhibit hypertrophy. Satellite cells aren't required for hypertrophy. Fiber splitting with exercise may be more prevalent than people realize. Um, there's a lot of sciencey stuff in this one. But what I find most fascinating uh, with anybody, but especially people who are involved in research and science and in areas that to me are very uh, admirable, but difficult, you know, like I can't imagine being a researcher. So I love to hear the perspective from a researcher, like, why do you do this? You know, what what makes what makes this so interesting to you? How do you feel like this is helping you kind of leave a dent in the world. Um, and so those are the questions and answers that fascinate me. And I had a wonderful conversation with Kevin here. Um, this is one of those that you're probably going to want to go back and re-listen to. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And more importantly, hope you do something with it. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on because um, when Dr. Galpin was on the show, he recommended that I get in contact with you to learn more about hypertrophy and concurrent training. And uh, so I've kind of followed the links from there and from listening to some of the other, you know, uh, the podcasts you've been on, a talk you've done and some papers you've put out. Uh, it's cool. I'm starting to see some connections here between talking with Dr. Galpin, then Dr. Tobias. She studies that protein ANPK. Sure, and then yeah. kind of hearing you, I'm piecing some things together. So I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, give us some context and some background as to, you know, what uh, your areas of study are and kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah, it's my, uh, my background has been been pretty varied at the moment. I guess I'll go in reverse order. Uh, at the current time, I'm a third year postdoctoral fellow uh, at the University of Kentucky and I primarily study uh, muscle stem cells, what we refer to as uh, satellite cells, and mostly doing uh, animal type of models because it's easier to ma manipulate uh, the system in mm -hmm. animals. And so I kind of work in that area, and that's uh, related to uh, muscle, muscle fiber size regulation and uh, just kind of trying to figure out exactly what these muscle stem cells are doing. And one of their roles is... Um, related to uh, muscle hypertrophy, muscle growth. And so I kind of do work in that area. But uh, my my dissertation, so during my PhD, so again, going in reverse or my uh, PhD, I was looking uh, kind of at single muscle fiber contractile mechanics in uh, the context of unloading and exercise and a little bit in aging as well. And so uh, I was kind of went, I'm kind of really molecular right now, but I went back and did uh, going back in time did some cellular work uh, related to specifically to a single muscle fiber function and then before that during my master's degree I was doing kind of like uh, whole body performance type of stuff my master's thesis was related to looking at um, lactate dynamics during high intensity exercise and then my undergraduate I was um, studying exercise science like a lot of people in my my position had done before so um, so yeah I've kind of gradually become more and more um, myopic i suppose more and more focused <laughs> but uh so yeah. yeah uh that's great i i always love to hear like 
what do you feel like drew you to the focus that you now have today? Like it started kind of vague with, you know, exercise science, but did sure. something happen or were you involved in certain sports where, you know, you were just intrigued by hypertrophy and you kind of kept digging at it? Yeah, I think that that kind of captures it actually in a nutshell. But, but, uh, yeah, when I was in high school, I, uh, I wasn't an especially talented athlete. I was okay at sports. I was decent at sports. That's like I was scholarship worthy for anything in particular, but I love sports and I love being athletic. And so, um, I kind of got into, uh, weightlifting though. My older brother was really into weightlifting and I kind of got into it as well. And, uh, it was also a great stress relief for me at that time as well. And so, um, so I really got into that. Then I got to college, started lifting more seriously and kind of just became really, um, intrigued by how it is that the, the body changes, specifically how muscle grows. It was just a very fascinating concept to me. And really it's, you know, at the root of it, I was just like trying to be as big as possible. And so like, you know, there is a selfish ambition there and I just wanted to learn more about how to get huge, uh, and so it became kind of it was kind of a superficial thing to start out with as, as it is I think for a lot of people and mm-hmm. um, but over time I kind of developed this academic interest and in I started majoring kinesiology and you know really got into that and realized I thought exercise was cool I just didn't know where I was going to go with it you know from a career perspective and so uh, I just kind of kept taking the next step taking the next step master's degree okay where's that going to take me and um, and as it was during my master's degree that I was part of a study that we did concurrent training and satellite cells. And uh, that's what we were looking at. And so uh, that kind of piqued my curiosity and it kind of stayed with me through my PhD work inadvertently. It's not like I planned a concurrent training study for my PhD. It just so happened that I got to do one, which was really fortunate. But then after that, I had the opportunity to come work here at University of Kentucky where they do this really great satellite cell work, this muscle stem cell work. And kind of all these things just sort of fell into place without me really planning it per se. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it kind of started with just a broad interest. How do I get my muscle to grow? And then it kind of went deeper and deeper from there. Now I'm kind of down the nitty gritty of these kind of nuanced things that probably people don't even really know about or care about, but I think is interesting. And so um, it's kind of taken on a mind of its own in the in the respect that, you know, it's it does apply to me in my daily life to in a certain capacity, but also I just find it absolutely fascinating to understand how adaptable muscle is. And so, uh, yeah, it's really just been drilling down deeper and deeper every year. So it's, it's, yeah. it's been pretty cool. Yeah. You mentioned how some of, uh, well, a lot of what you are kind of, uh, studying and where you're focused has involved, you know, challenging dogma and you being a younger scientist, that's kind of a, a tough position to be in. Could sure. you dig into that a little bit more? Like what are some of those areas that seem kind of uh, almost taboo to the rest of the scientists that you're kind of looking into? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting again, because totally unplanned. It's not like I set out on my scientific journey to, to prove people wrong. In fact, that's not even really my personality to like get in other people's faces about why their position is or is not correct. I mean, I'm kind of a reserved person, but it just so happens that the different things I decided to study, the more I thought about them and kind of got into it, I kind of just saw that there were things missing. And Mm -hmm. so it kind of compelled me to, I guess, find the truth, quote unquote. Um, and whether or not I have is totally up for debate, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, the, um, the specific areas I think that have become, at least for me, kind of a challenging dogma, so to say, have been, well, first of all, the concurrent training um, idea where there's this notion that you can't do um, aerobic or endurance type of training and also have significant 
um, muscle size, muscle hyper, hypertrophic type of gains. And, you know, um, that idea has been pretty, uh, pretty ingrained in the, in the, at least in the science, the exercise science, exercise physiology literature for some time now. And, um, like I said, during my dissertation, I was doing a concurrent training study. Um, and so I obviously had to find essentially every paper that ever looked at this topic and, you know, be familiar with it and kind of understand what the findings were. And so in the process of finding all these papers and, you know, reading them and looking at their findings, I came to realize that, um, at least if we're talking about, you know, more or less untrained people and talking about their whole muscle size, if you do both types of exercise, it does not seem that at least in that early phase of hypertrophy that it um, inhibits anything at all, even though people, if anything, it, it ten, tends to augment muscle growth if you combine the two, if you're untrained and different caveats. But it was completely mm-hmm. counter to what I had been told, what I had been taught, what I had read in review papers and all these different things. And so, um, and then I kind of got into, okay, well, why does this thought exist? And I started going back in the literature and sort of um, reading more and trying to understand where this idea came from and realized that it was kind of built on a shaky foundation. So that was kind of the first thing. The second thing is, um, you know, right now I'm studying these satellite cells, these muscle stem cells. And ever since the late 60s, it's been thought that these muscle stem cells were absolutely imperative for muscle fiber hypertrophy. So if you're going to go to the gym and you're going to lift weights, um, these stem cells become activated and they do things within the muscle, which I can elaborate on later if you, if you want, but they do things in the muscle that people thought were absolutely imperative for hypertrophy. So, um, and that was pretty much ingrained and more or less dogmatic until about five or six years ago. Then when somebody in the laboratory I work in now thought of a way to delete the muscle stem cells in a mouse, which is, it was a brilliant model. It is a brilliant model. We still use it today. Um, so if you delete the stem cells, the idea would be if you delete them and you try to get the muscle to grow, you get the mouse's muscle to grow via exercise or some other stimulus that they wouldn't grow anymore. But we found that wasn't the case at all. You can delete the stem cells and they seem to grow just fine. And we've actually found some other roles for these stem cells that are important for muscle remodeling, muscle adaptation, but it's not what we originally thought. You can still grow the muscle if you don't have the stem cells, at least to a certain extent. And we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out what the limitations are still. But um, but it was just uh, totally the opposite of what people have been thinking for like 50 or 60 years. And so I've kind of stepped into that line of research and have been kind of publishing in that area now and doing some of that. And then the third thing is um, for a long time, it's been thought that, again, if you go to the gym and you lift some weights that your muscle fibers grow. Each individual fiber will grow, but you won't develop more fibers. It's uh, this this uh, idea of hypertrophy, which is the growth of the fibers that are there, versus hyperplasia, which is the development of essentially new fibers, new muscle cells. Um, but I, I published a paper recently that showed that in certain circumstances, and we've known this for a long time too, and after I went back and read more, I kind of realized, okay, this has always been here, but people have just been ignoring it. But um, but I published this paper recently that showed that you can have muscle growth via hyperplasia, via like the splitting of existing muscle fibers. You know, a big muscle fiber becomes two smaller ones, and um, and and so on. And so that that was kind of captured my imagination because I've been taught up to this point in my career, all through my PhD, everything that you know, having more muscle fibers, you're stuck with what you got essentially. Like there's no way you can develop more muscle fibers. Um, with exercise at least, but it seemed, yeah. at least in my model that I had, that I showed that could be the case. And if you really look at the literature, um, 
it's buried in there, but it has been showed in humans as well under specific circumstances. And so it's just one of those things where it shocked me and I had to convince myself that it was true. But now that I've kind of spent more time thinking about it, it kind of makes sense. Um, not in all circumstances, but it kind of makes sense. But those three areas for me have kind of been my focus over the last, I guess, eight years or so. But inadvertently, they've all been things that um, people thought they knew about and thought they had the answer to and had it pinned down. But then, I don't know, I, I guess I'm not convinced, essentially. And so uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to kind of like uh, fight that battle so or fight those battles, so to stay. But uh, like I said, it's not really my personality because I don't like, you know, like telling people they're quote unquote wrong. And a lot of times, and you know, they're not necessarily yeah. wrong. It's just different shades of right, <laughs> I suppose. <Yeah>. So <laughs> how, how challenging is it um, when something like this does happen where you come across something that you're like, ah, oh, this is a little contrary to what has been being put out by the sure. masses and you're trying to go against that. Um, I'm sure there has to be, you know, I, I heard from Dr. Irene and um, Dr. Andy, like, you know, funding is a huge obstacle that kind of comes into play when we're sure. trying to, you know, do research. Like there has to be stuff like that, that you're facing when you decide that, okay, we're going to investigate this stuff a little bit further. Sure. No, it, may, it definitely, may, it makes it, it makes it challenging, but at the same time it can be an advantage as well. Especially you mentioned funding, like, uh, the things that get funded are the things that are novel, and um, the I, some of the ideas that I've presented, especially you know the the, the muscle stem cell idea, um, the people that I work with, people that I work for now, they've been consistently funded for the last oh man seven six seven eight years on this topic because they're able they're saying okay well it's not this but what we found out is maybe it's actually this. And so it has kind of led this whole different research line that was totally unexpected because, you know, if we just confirmed what everybody already thought, that's not necessarily a quote unquote fundable idea. And that's not the reason why they found what they found. It's not, they didn't make it up. You know, it, the results are true, but it's, it's interesting because you'd think that it in some ways would be a detriment it can be advantageous too and you know how to spin it the right way to make people realize, oh, this is really in fact very interesting. If they're not doing this, then what are they doing? Um, and that's been really, really good for our lab. But uh, but yeah, as a young person, as a young scientist, like, you know, I have the support of people ahead of me, senior scientists that, you know, are on board with this idea because they essentially developed it and so it makes it easier. But yeah, out in the public though, you know, like if I go and give a talk and say to somebody that, oh, you know, you can concurrent train and still, you know, you can keep your muscle mass, you know, within reason. And people, are, oh, no, no, that's not the case. You know, like that's, you know, if you can't make a marathon or grow muscle and blah, 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 so on and so forth. And yeah, that can be challenging sometimes because, you know, it's just ingrained in people's heads that these ideas are true, even if they haven't actually explored the literature or really, you know, thought about it critically. And so it, it can be challenging for sure. And, but, but you just need to be confident in, first of all, your own data, but confident in what you believe as well. Um, and I am, and so it's okay, but yeah, there's, there's definitely pushback all the time, but it's that way. That's just how science is though. And that's, that's the great thing about it. I think is you have differing opinions on things and 
most of the time people can have civil discourse, not always, but you know, um, and that's what drives the field forward. Honestly, a lot of times is, is controversy. You know, someone says this, but someone else says this. Well, we need to find the answer, and um, it drives the field forward. In the process of trying to figure out the answer, you a lot of times figure something else out that's really cool, and uh, it leads you down a different path. And that's um, that's actually something I've had to learn in the last couple of years. Is just like you have a hypothesis and you think it's going to lead to this, but a lot of times it doesn't, at least to something else entirely. And a lot of times what you didn't know is actually a lot cooler. The thing you found out is a lot cooler. And so, um, yeah, I think I'm getting off track here, but anyway, as a, as a young scientist, it can absolutely be challenging to be in an area that's challenging dogma. But, um, at the same time, if you know how to play the game, so to say, you can make it, um, something interesting to people and make it an idea that can be sustainable for, you know, your career. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I guess we should start with kind of, um, talking a little bit about hypertrophy and what we kind of mean by it. And, and what I kind of interpret right when I think of that word is like, okay, to the person who's looking for longevity and for health and for sustainability and using fitness for that, you know, hypertrophy is great, right? Like developing muscle mass, uh, especially as we kind of get older. And, you know, that's something uh, that becomes more and more valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody who's trying to lose weight, you know, skeletal muscle mass is kind of beneficial. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for somebody who is pursuing performance, Right. I mean, I feel like we've been in this uh, this phase in, in in the fitness community where like hypertrophy was kind of uh, looked down upon for a little bit. Right. Like it was counterintuitive to making these performance gains and it wasn't functional. But at the same time, it's like, well, that's kind of what's providing the foundation to layer, you know, speed, strength and all these other characteristics that an athlete might need depending on whatever their sport is. So, sure. uh, could you, could you kind of elaborate a little bit more on, uh, I guess what, uh, the role of hypertrophy is, I guess, within those two contexts. Sure. Man, hypertrophy is, is one of those, I, I guess the best thing I can come up with right now is I, there was a paper that came out just the other day that was saying that, you know, there hasn't, been convincing evidence that muscle size is related to muscle strength and that you can have the two things separately and that is absolutely true but like you know so my response to your answer would, to your question would be like okay how what is hypertrophy well it's muscle fiber growth it's overall muscle growth for the purpose of generating strength not necessarily generating power but generating strength mm. but then you know you go in the literature and you see someone just publishing a paper oh these two things can be absolutely disconnected and they're not always related and Yes. I mean, I'll be the first. Okay. Yes. You know, there are times when muscle size and muscle strength are disconnected. Sure. Um, but I'm just going to take the position for the sake of our conversation right now. Muscle hypertrophy is important for muscle strength, right? Like if you have the bigger muscle, you're going to be able to generate more force. And that is one component of performance. As you said, there's a lot, but there's a lot of components of performance, you know, like velocity, for instance, and you put those two things together, force and velocity, you get power and power is, you know, arguably the most important metric there is because it's the combination of those two really important factors together. It's great to be just strong, but you want to be able to also move things quickly and that's kind of what matters in athletic context but um but when i think about hypertrophy i think about 
the accretion of muscle mass, so making your muscles bigger, making what you have bigger, and that has a lot of important consequences, strength not being the, the least of them, but um, you know, also having more muscle mass can be beneficial from a metabolic pr- perspective. It's a, it's a very large sink for glucose. It's uh, very important for glucose homeostasis, for insulin sensitivity. Um, there's a lot of things that muscle mass really have an important regulatory role in, you know, for just body heat and obviously mobility and all these different things. And, you know, it, it muscles an endocrine organ. It spits out all these different things that communicate with other aspects of um, your physiology. And so muscle is extremely important. And muscle hypertrophy is wrapped up in all of those things. And so, um, you know, it's easy to think about it just as, you know, making your muscles big or great, but there's consequences to that. And it can have this trickle down effect on all these different systems and obviously has, I'm sure in the context that you're most interested in, a performance aspect of it, you know, but uh, it's not, it's not the be all end all. I'll be the first to tell you hypertrophy isn't the be all end all, but you know, we focus on it a lot because it's something that's naturally just lost with aging. And the other thing that's interesting about muscle growth is like it's unlike fat in the sense that you can throw down a bunch of food and you'll grow your fat stores, but it's not like you can just throw down a bunch of protein and you'll grow your muscle. You know, that's not how it works. Mm. It requires something additional. And so uh, it's it's really interesting in that respect and it's something that just doesn't happen naturally. You know, it's like you got to put something else into it. So, um, but I don't know if I answered your question directly, but that's uh, that's how I think about hypertrophy, I guess, in a nutshell. Yeah, I know. Perfect. Um, so now that we have some context with uh, that, also now let's get into concurrent training and what we kind of mean by that. Sure. So by your definition, what, what exactly is concurrent training? Concurrent training, in my mind, how I define it, is training for two separate modalities simultaneously. So training for hypertrophy, but also training for endurance, for instance. Um, that would be concurrent training. That can look a couple different ways. That could be, you know, doing uh, endurance exercise bout immediately before resistance exercise bout or vice versa. Or it could be, um, you know, separating that those bouts by 24 hours or so. Or um, it could be any number of things. But in my mind, it's just doing the two things within the same training program to get two different training outcomes. Um, other people would argue, oh, that's not concurrent training. Concurrent training is only if you do them in close succession or whatever. I don't really think about it that way, but some people do. But that's that's kind of my idea of it is trying to get these two separate adaptations simultaneously. Yeah, no, that's why I think it's it's important that we highlighted you know your version and your context around this sure. just for the sake of this conversation. Yeah. Um, but would you? So what comes to mind for me, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like when we look at the sport of CrossFit, mm-hmm. is is that concurrent training? What's going on there? I would say so. Yeah, I think so because those I'm sure because, those guys are tremendously fit uh, aerobically, but uh, they also have a tremendous amount of strength and a lot of muscle mass. So in my mind, yeah, they're they're developing both those systems simultaneously, and so in my mind, yeah, I'd say they are concurrent training. And it's one of those things like, you know, when we look at the textbooks, it technically, you know, what these guys are doing year after year as the competition and as the sport is kind of growing and keeps pushing forward, um, we're seeing all these athletic feats that are like textbook wise, it seems almost like impossible. Like, how is this all happening? Right. Sure. But what you're saying is what you're studying is kind of 
starting to investigate some of that and, and, and trying to essentially update the textbooks in a way. Sure. And, you know, I think obviously if you're training for the highest level of competition in one specific respect, so if you want to be a super elite Olympic lifter, I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend marathon training for that. I don't think that specificity is going to translate. Um, But do I think that you can be pretty dang good in both those disciplines? I sure do. And I think that is maybe some people that's obvious, but I think for a lot of people that is sort of a paradigm shift. You know, oh, I don't have to just be a gym rat in order to be really, really jacked, you know, or I don't, you know, just have to be an endurance athlete in order to go really fast. You know, you can have both these elements and maybe you won't quite achieve the absolute highest level that was possible to achieve in any one of those disciplines independently. But for how many people does that really matter? You know, like it's a very small sect of the population that we're talking about here. And so, I mean, you look at these CrossFit, they're a great example. Like they are just tremendous athletes in so many respects and they outperform a lot of people who are training in those specific disciplines, you know, regardless. Mm -hmm. And it's really impressive. And and they're kind of, and granted they are exceptional, like they somehow don't get injured. Like, I don't know. It's, they're amazing (laughs) individuals, but still it's just kind of a, it's an an interesting case study. So to say, it's an interesting case. study. it's like, you look at, you know, Olympic decathletes, for instance, they're doing all types of different things, but I'll tell you what, they can do those things still better than 99.9% of the population. Maybe they're not quite as fast as the dude that's only doing that one thing in the decathlon, focusing on that, but they can still do it better than pretty much everybody else on the planet at an extremely high level. So, And there's something to be said for that. Yeah. How do you see uh, some of what you're studying applying, especially with concurrent training and hypertrophy, uh, applying to just the general population. And by that, I mean, let's focus on the audience that's focusing on health and longevity and, uh, you know, sustainable type of training, um, which a lot of people still pursue through concurrent training because it's fun, right? You can, you know, you can, you can do traditional bodybuilding style stuff, but then you can also, you know, do some metabolic conditioning and people like that type of variance. So how do we see some of this stuff connecting back to that population? Well, like you said, you know, muscle mass is very, very important. And I think building muscle mass is paramount for successful aging um, because there comes a point in your aging process where it becomes exceedingly difficult to put on muscle mass. So being able to do that at a younger age and to walk, to quote unquote, walk into your 70s, 80s with as much muscle mass as as possible puts you at an advantage um, for a variety of reasons, really from, you know, if you fall down, you're more likely to recover if you do get hurt or you're less likely to fall down, period. If you you know have functional muscle mass, that's awesome and that's really helpful. And But the other aspect though is that we can't ignore the cardiovascular component. Like your heart health ha- is a huge indicator of how successfully you will age and it's indicative of so many important health indices that it can't be ignored. And so – Marrying those two things together, in my mind, is so important just for the general person so that when they get into an old age that you have this this quote-unquote physiological reserve, right? So you have this reserve of strength so that if you fall down, you're able to catch yourself or if you do get hurt, you're able to recover more quickly. But also just having the ability to get up and be independent and to you know be able to walk relatively long distances or even you know jog or run relatively long distances – and you know maintain your insulin sensitivity do all these things like that's 
really, really paramount. So it's important just from a general health perspective to have both these things together. And so often one or the other gets focused on and people like you touched upon, you know, it's interest. It's, it's entertaining. It keeps people interested to do these different things because they are so different. And you know, it's like variety is the spice of life, right? Like you want to, it's really easy to get burnt out just doing one thing or to get injured just doing one thing. And so I think just from a longevity standpoint and from a, um, what's the word I'm looking for from an adherence standpoint, it's important to have those two things in there just to, just to keep things interesting for you. But, uh, but I mean, also if I just take a step back as the exercise physiologist, you know, the American college of sports medicine, which is our, um, our governing body, essentially. Um, the recommendation is concurrent training is to do strength and to do endurance exercise, have both those things together just for general health and wellness. That's been the recommendation for a long time. And, um, I really, can't stress how important it is to have both those things and i think you know it's it's become like you said taboo to say that you can't have the best of both worlds but i think the average person most people you kind of can you know you can be strong and you can be a good endurance athlete and you know your body is extremely adaptable (laughs) extremely adaptable and so um yeah yeah i think uh it just for the general person i think that type of training is the way to go. But, um, I, yeah. How, um, so how, how about when we think of, uh, let's say weight loss, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have like this in body scanner where you, you can get a ton of different metrics and you can definitely go down a rabbit hole of like interpreting all those different data points. But one is, uh, skeletal muscle mass and the other is your basal metabolic rate, right? Mm-hmm. Like how much, how many calories you're burning just from being at rest to survive on a day to day basis without sure. doing any extra training or activity. And if you, if you put on some lean muscle, technically that means your skeletal muscle mass goes up, right? Which means your BMR also goes up and that mm-hmm. may assist in weight loss, right? So from your perspective, what, how do you see those things kind of being connected when we think of the person who's like, well, you know, I just kind of want to lose weight. Um, but hypertrophy, uh, does this, cause when we think of hypertrophy and you say muscle growth, does that always mean visibly grow like actual growth aesthetically or does it mean like hey the repairing of muscles and maybe you put on a couple pounds of lean muscle but it doesn't look that way and you're getting skinnier um i don't know i I wanted to get your thoughts on just like the weight loss concept and hypertrophy and the connectedness between the two there right well yeah it's yeah your, your metabolic rate is very much related to how much lean mass you have sure um it's it's a tough question to answer I'm trying. My mind goes to a, to a couple different places, but um, I guess the, the real the real thrust of your question is how important is having muscle mass for for losing weight? I guess is mm-hmm. sort of yeah. I mean, you can uh, yeah. That's a <laughs> that's a that's a tricky one. Uh, in the sense that there's there's just so many opinions on losing weight, um, and obviously, so if you have trying to think of the best way to frame this. So I, I always come back to the energy balance equation, you know, and people yeah. people argue to the death about how important the quality of your calories are. And yes, it's true. I think most people with a balanced diet, uh, if you eat less calories than you burn, yeah, you're going to lose weight, sure. And that's, you know, 
independent of your starting muscle mass. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, there's no doubt that. So the more muscle you have, obviously you're going to burn, burn more calories. That's mm-hmm. kind of a given. And I think it's important this is I've taught lectures on this before and I'm trying to to capture it here I think what's what people don't understand is it needs to be calibrated to where you're at and what mm-hmm. what, I, what I mean by that is okay so let's say I go and I exercise I weigh well, we'll just, I'll just say 150 pounds right now and so I'm only capable of burning so many calories during exercise, right? And that's Mm -hmm. a function of how much muscle mass I have. So if I go to the gym and I say I want to burn 1,000 calories, for instance, right? Do you know what it would take for me, a fit person who's able – we'll just say right now my my VO2 max, my maximal oxygen capacity. Let's just say it's 60 and I'm being generous. and if I calculate it out to liters, it's probably somewhere around four liters that I'm able to consume, four liters of oxygen per minute. So that's at my maximum, I can burn about 20 kcals per minute if I was working all out. And that calculates out to 1,200 calories in an hour. If I was working at my absolute top end maximum, can't go any harder for one entire hour, that's impossible. So somebody my size would be in of my level of fitness, which is fairly fit, you know, not very fit, but fit enough. I exercise frequently. Mm-hmm. It would be almost impossible for me to consistently go burn 1000 calories. What's the consequence of that for me losing weight though? Do I need to go to the gym and burn 1000 calories in an exercise session in order to lose weight? Absolutely not. I only weigh 150 pounds. You know, like mm-hmm. I, if I wanted to get in a caloric deficit, I'd probably only need to burn an extra couple hundred calories a day and I would see differences pretty readily, you know? Mm. And that's the thing that people don't realize is it's all it's going to be scaled to your size because like you said your muscle mass is metabolically active. And so I think it's important to set realistic expectations based on that though. You know, I tell people right. all the time like don't ever go to the gym and say, "Oh, I need to I need to burn 800 1000 calories." Because the fact of the matter is most people just can't even do it. Like Right. A really, really big person, somebody who's like really large and potentially even obese, could burn that many calories in an hour during exercise, perhaps just because they are so large. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so, but is that relevant for them? Like, if it's, is that proportional to how, how big they are um, as far as a calorie loss, fat loss perspective? Not really. And so, I don't know if I'm directly answering your question, but muscle mass is absolutely important because it is metabolically active and it does burn calories, but it needs to be thought of in the correct context. It needs to be based on somebody's physiology. Yeah, having more muscle mass is great, but you need to understand that you also are bigger and how many calories you're burning is has to be scaled to your overall body size. And so um, I don't know if that directly answers your question, but um, but that's yeah, no. sort of how I think about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it does. And um, I guess the second part to that that I was curious about was like, 
when we think of hypertrophy uh, and we're thinking of muscle growth, mm-hmm. does this always mean like, let's say we're thinking of a female who just gained a couple pounds of lean muscle mass, but her body fat percentage went down and she doesn't look like huge. She looks, you know, she dropped two inches on her waist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that still like, is that uh, possible within the context of hypertrophy? Because I feel like there's this, this, uh, image that we associate with hypertrophy because it means, you know, muscle growth of like getting huge. Mm -hmm. Right. But does it always have to mean that, or could this be something going on internally where there's like, okay, there's muscle growth happening, but it's not necessarily making you look ginormous. Sure. I think, well, yeah, it's interesting because sometimes you find that, (laughs) You'll go to the gym and you'll see a guy and he'll look, you know, after you haven't seen him in a couple months and he'll look especially jacked, but really he just got leaner, you know, like it's interesting. Like he actually probably maybe lost some weight, but because he got leaner that everything became more defined and made him look more muscular. Um, so, but that's, that's a body composition thing. It's about body. Like, so yeah, you can absolutely, you know, lose some weight and look bigger, but I also think, you know, you can gain some weight, but look smaller too. Like it's obviously has a lot to do with your frame, but you, you bring females up because I'm sure that this is an issue for people who do train people is always having to combat this. Oh, you know, you're not going to look like a bodybuilder. Like, and there's Mm -hmm. this idea, especially a lot of times with women is that they're going to lift weights and they're going to bulk up and they're going to get really huge and it's not going to be feminine anymore. And, um, you probably know as well as I do that is it's not, easy to put on muscle mass that takes a pretty concerted effort to put on muscle mass you got to have your diet right you have your have to have your sleep right there's a lot of things that need to go into putting on muscle mass especially for most people some people have a higher affinity than others but but for most people it's a challenging thing to do um but yeah i mean i think uh the body composition should be the focus as opposed to gaining or losing and as far as the image goes, the body composition, I think is everything, you know, like it's, it's, it's the framework that we need to base things off of because does it really, the weight matter as much when you are healthy, when you look healthy? Um, I personally don't think so. Some may argue differently, but, but yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that I think people don't realize that your body doesn't necessarily want more muscle mass than it has you know you're sort of kind Mm -hmm. of optimized for how much muscle you need to do the things that you need to do and i alluded to it earlier it's not like if you ate a steak you would put on three pounds of muscle mass that's not how it works you may you may some steak and put on a couple pounds of body fat you know but you're not going to put on muscle there's something special something different about muscle mass that your body doesn't want to it's concerted effort to put it on and so, yeah, you know, which is why I think it makes such for such a striking contrast. You see somebody that didn't have muscle mass that does and vice and vice versa, you know? So, right. yeah. Yeah. Now, the next thing I want to get into is um, aerobic or endurance style training. And maybe this applies to just uh, beginners who are considered like untrained and mm-hmm. they just start, um, you know, let's say they start doing some aerobic work and they do see some changes in hypertrophy, right? Uh, cause is that something you could elaborate a little bit more on? I feel yeah. like I got a, a touch of that when I was looking through some of your work. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, so when you're untrained, 
any type of stimulus is going to generally be challenging. And Mm -hmm. what's kind of come to light, especially in the last five or 10 years or so, really it extends beyond that, but really in the last five or 10 years is the idea and the the realization that, you know, getting someone who's untrained just to sit on the bike for 30 minutes, three or four times a week, they'll put on muscle mass from that. They'll put on muscle mass in their legs from doing that. Not a lot, not a, sometimes a lot, but usually not like a tremendous amount, but they will put on muscle mass in their legs just from that resistance that they're not accustomed to, even though they're doing something that's more endurance oriented, right? That's, you know, 30, 40 minutes of 65% of their maximum capacity. They'll put on some muscle mass from that. And it's interesting because it's contrary to what you generally believe about, you know, endurance training, for instance, is like, oh, that's not going to cause you to put on muscle mass. Well, that in and of itself has been shown time and time again to put on muscle mass in a variety of populations. And so actually a study came out recently that showed that interval running on the treadmill in untrained people puts on muscle mass in their calves, their calves or their thighs, I don't remember which one, one of the lower lower extremity muscles. But it's like totally contrary to what people think about training. And a lot of that probably is due just to the fact that they started out with relatively small muscles because they weren't really using them. And all of a sudden they're using them. Granted for endurance training, they're using them. And so, and it requires a certain amount of muscle mass to propel yourself through space or to push those pedals. And so that's just part of the adaptation, which is really interesting. How about once you are considered trained, like once you are out of that state, and of course it becomes a little bit harder to put on muscle mass, but do we still see endurance training contributing to that muscle growth as you become a more trained individual? There is so little data on that actually out in the literature, which is a shame because um, it's an interesting topic. My inclination is to say probably not. Like, Do I think that a well-trained cyclist, if they were to amp up their – their mileage, they would all of a sudden get even bigger quads. Probably not. Perhaps if they weren't doing intervals and then added intervals in, something that's more high force, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of data in that area, though, is the truth. And so, um, which is, like I said, it's a shame. And I hope that that work kind of gets done. There's a little bit here and there, but there's not enough in that area to really say for sure. But I would, my inclination is to say, no, probably not. Now, if you ask the question, well, would that same person, if they added in resistance training, would they not grow as much as the person that wasn't doing all that endurance training? Some would say no. I would say it depends. Um, mm. I think it's possible to have significant hypertrophy while still maintaining an endurance program. But um, others would argue against that. But, you know, that's what makes it fun, right? So, But yeah. to really get the root of your question, though, there's really not enough data in highly trained people. But you know, like I said, that early phase of training, at least your muscles are sort of freaking out and trying to do everything they can to maintain homeostasis. And if whatever you're doing is requiring, you know, more force output than what is generally required from walking around, then yeah, part of that adaptation is probably going to be put on a little bit of muscle mass. So. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now I want to dig into the satellite cells. So this is something uh, you mentioned that muscle stem cells, that's used interchangeably with satellite cells? Uh, it is and it isn't. I, I say muscle stem cells because something that people can grasp onto a little bit easier. There's a variety of – the satellite cells are the primary muscle stem cell population in muscle. There are other populations that are being discovered that have stem cell-like properties that you know, are 
kind of gaining traction as muscle stem cells as well. But when we say muscle stem cells, we generally are referring to satellite cells, which is a specific population of muscle stem cells. And these specific, the specific population of muscle stem cells, if you do not have them, for instance, um, and I'll just use the mouse model, for example, if we caused a regenerative insult in the muscle. So if we injected something into the muscle that was like a poison and broke the muscle down, if you didn't have the stem cells, that muscle couldn't regenerate. Whereas if you do have these stem cells, these sally cells, the muscle will regenerate, will grow new fibers and it'll kind of come back. But if you don't have these satellite cells, that will not happen. And so that's why this is considered the primary muscle stem cell population, because we know that if you don't have them, the muscle just essentially becomes goo if it becomes really injured and it can't recover. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. So for, let's say, connecting it back to our general population, maybe they're looking for performance or they're looking for longevity mm -hmm. and health. Um, what role does the, the satellite cells play in kind of maybe what they, uh, what they should kind of understand about it and, and within their own bodies? Like what, what role is that playing for them? Sure. Yeah. The muscle stem cells, these satellite cells, well, there's a couple things that we know they do. And so if you think about a muscle fiber, and muscle is so interesting for so many reasons, but one of the reasons why muscle is so interesting is because you have these cells or these, these long cylindrical cells that aren't really like other cells in the body in that sense, just in their basic morphology and the way that they're structured and shaped. And within these cells, you have all these different things, but it running down the middle of the muscle cell is all the contractile components. So your myosin, your actin, the things that allow your muscle to contract, but then pressed to the outside because all that stuff is in the middle, pressed to the outside of this cylinder are all these other organelles, including the nuclei, which are the muscle nuclei. And what's interesting about muscle is that it has tons of them. It has, it's not a cell that just has one nucleus, unlike most other cells in the body, it has hundreds, thousands of nuclei, which is really interesting um, in and of itself. Uh, and so so you have this muscle fiber that has these contractile elements in the middle, and then you have these nuclei around the outside of the cell. And what's interesting about the nuclei is that they cannot replenish themselves. They are quote-unquote post-mitotic. So myonuclei, the nuclei within muscle cells, they can't divide anymore um, so far as we know. And so what these stem cells do, one of their roles is to essentially become activated and then the stem cell will essentially replicate itself and it can fuse into the muscle fiber and contribute a muscle nucleus. So if something happened to that muscle nucleus, one of the muscle nucleus of the hundreds or thousands that are in there, something happened to some of them and they died or they apoptosed or something happened to them where they couldn't function anymore, stem cell could come in and just donate another nucleus because it can replicate itself and it can donate one of its replicated nuclei right into the muscle fiber to replace the one that was lost or the one that wasn't functioning correctly. And so um, that's one of the known roles of these muscle stem cells, these satellite cells. And um, that actually people say has important implications for muscle hypertrophy, right? Because yeah. the idea is that you can't really grow a muscle fiber but so big before you need more myonuclei in order to kind of manage the situation, so to say, to manage the hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, another role for these stem cells. They thought to be really important for muscle hypertrophy because they can contribute additional myonuclei during growth. But the other thing that has become really interesting about these muscle stem cells is um, 
they seem to be really important for regulating just the muscle environment. We know now that these muscle stem cells, when they get activated, they, um, they're able to spit out different things um, that are able to go and interact with other populations of muscle cells within the muscle itself. And that's another thing, interesting thing about so many tissues in the body is like you think about muscle, oh, it's just muscle fibers. There are so many things in muscle. Right. You have immune cells. You have other stem cell populations. You have endothelial cells. You have all these different things and they're all communicating, it seems, with one another. And We're just, trying to, we're just starting to figure out how they do this. But it seems like these muscle stem cells are really important, are these like really important little nodes of communication in that they regulate other cells within the muscle environment. And so they're, we've recently discovered they're really important for regulating fibrosis. And it seems that there are a lot of conditions, human conditions, in sickness and perhaps even in aging where fibrosis, non-contractile tissue and muscle becomes – too prevalent and it can actually affect how the muscle operates because if you have more non-contractile than contractile components in muscle it's not going to perform very well you know it's like gunking up the muscle with things that don't really have a motor function anymore so these little muscle stem cells are really important for regulating that fibrosis that um that ecm the extracellular matrix so to say within the muscle so that when things happen it can remodel appropriately and not deposit too much of this extra fibrosis so to say so the muscle continues to operate optimally and so um they're really important for that and so how does this uh how does this have a public health relevance well for the longest time and still to this day people really believe that these muscle stem cells are the reason for aging are the reason why muscle isn't as strong when you get older why it can't grow as well you know, um, that, you know, maybe these muscle stem cells that were once really good and spitting out all these good things to regulate the environment, maybe once they get old, they start spitting out all these bad things that cause bad things to happen in the muscle. So you lose muscle mass, you're not as strong, so on and so forth. Um, and it's sort of our position that uh, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, we know that if we delete stem cells entirely from the muscle early in life in a mouse, that later in life, the mouse is the same as one that had all the stem cells for the most part. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's really important because it's able, all these recent findings really helped us to be able to guide research in a direction that's productive for society. You know, like instead of focusing on all the things we thought they were doing and wasting time and resources, we're able to sort of reframe what we think about these stem cells and focus energy on things that we know that they're doing so that we can then develop therapeutics for, you know, problems with different diseases or problem that are related to perhaps, you know, fibrosis or something like that, or um, developing different things that are related to how we can focus on working on internal factors within the muscle fiber to grow it as opposed to just focusing on the satellite cells, which don't seem to have as much of a role in, in that type of stuff. So, so it's, that's how it's become important. That's how the research that I do has become more relevant because I can see that just the allocation of resources and how we focus our energy on research, especially as it relates to muscle stem cells, maybe needs to change a little bit. Yeah. Um, how about uh, fiber splitting? Is that, is that connected to what you were just talking about with the satellite cells? Potentially. And that's, 
man, that's so wide open right now. And that's something I think about all the time. And I've gone back and forth with all my colleagues about what we think satellite cells are doing, if they're contributing to muscle fiber splitting, if they're not. And just to be clear, like muscle, when you have one muscle fiber and it becomes two, for instance, or three, if it bifurcates, it does all these different things. Generally, that process is associated with disease states. A lot of times you see that sort of in muscular dystrophy. And incidentally, what you also have in something like at least the mouse models of muscular dystrophy is you have this like rampant turnover of muscle stem cells or satellite cells. And those two things seem to be associated. You have this rampant turnover of stem cells and you have this muscle fiber splitting phenomenon that seems to occur. And so people naturally say, oh, you have these two things that are going on in parallel. They must be related and they must be bad, right? And um, so as in the context of hypertrophy, I can't really say whether or not this, the satellite cells have that much to do with it because I've seen, you know – in our models of deleted stem cells, that muscle stem cells, when we delete those, that we still get muscle fiber splitting sometimes. Um, do I think that they could play a role? Maybe if not having stem cells causes that to happen more with an extreme hyper, hypertrophic stimulus or extreme growth stimulus, or does it happen less? I, I don't really have the answer to that question. Do I think they could be related? Most certainly. I just haven't I haven't pinned it down yet. And it's something that I, I'm really interested in thinking about. And I know a lot of people that I'm around now have, have really started thinking about this a lot more too. But uh, I can't really answer the question because I really don't know because it's just this idea has been around for a long time, but it's it's still kind of so new because we just yeah. know so little. And also it's been ignored for so long. So Right. So to paint the picture of what fiber splitting is again, could you could you do that really quick? Is like sure, uh, yeah, most certainly. Because you mentioned it's something that um, you know with exercise, it's more prevalent than people you know might realize. But yeah, just can set the context for what fiber splitting is. Sure, sure, and so essentially, when most people think about muscle hypertrophy, they think of the individual muscle fibers that they already have, which in any given muscle, maybe in your your quad muscle, you may have millions and millions of fibers, and they say that you can't make more of them, that they don't that they're they are what they are. And so they either just grow or get smaller within the confines of the cell that's already there. And so what muscle fiber splitting is though, is it seems that under certain circumstances that the muscle fiber will grow, 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 and then it will essentially divide. But not, at least not, I, I don't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like it happens all the way down the fiber. It seems like it sort of maybe branches in half and then maybe branches again. Um, hmm. So that original innervation of the muscle fiber perhaps remains, but it just kind of branches out. And why that happens? I have some theories. I don't really know exactly why. Um, and how much does it actually happen in humans? Because I've observed it with my own eyes in, in mouse models. But um, how much does it actually happen in humans? People would say it doesn't. But it's interesting if you kind of look into the um, powerlifting and the bodybuilding literature, um, you sometimes will find that maybe bodybuilders have smaller fibers than a normal person which would be vexing because their muscles are so massive. How can their fibers be yeah. smaller? The only explanation is there's more of them. Well, how do they get more of them? Were they born with more of them, potentially? Or is there splitting? 
that's a reasonable um, hypothesis. And mm. there's actually been some papers that have shown muscle fiber splitting, at least doing some specific techniques in, uh, in muscle samples obtained from bodybuilders and powerlifters. And so it's not out, outside the realm of possibility. I think in circumstances of extreme hypertrophy that it can happen. And a lot of times in these um, these studies that show muscle fiber splitting and let's say elite bodybuilders or elite powerlifters, um, they'll say, oh, well, you know, they were on steroids because a lot of times in those studies, they will have a cohort of people that were on steroids because they, you know, just part of their subject characteristics. They have to disclose that because it could be an important confounding variable. And so they, oh, it's all attributed to the steroids. Well, I would argue back, if you look at the people on not on steroids, they still have a phenomenal amount of what I would think is muscle fiber splitting. But also, um, can you attribute just the steroids or just the fact that they're able to train more, that they're able to train harder, that they're able to recover better, and that they're just putting more of a load on their muscles that causes this phenomenon just to happen more? Perhaps it's a natural phenomenon that's just exacerbated by the fact that they're able to train harder because they're on steroids. Maybe it's just a... Uh. Uh, it's a consequence of that, you know, or it's a it's a yeah. secondary effect of the steroids, not the steroids directly. It's not like if I injected someone with steroids, I'd expect all their fibers to split. No, I think it has more to do with the load they're placing on the muscle, the stress, the training stress that's that's causing this to happen. So, is it advantageous? Is it um, is it pathological? I would argue that there could be some advantages to it. I know that it's mostly seen in pathological models, but you know, it could be that, for instance, if you think about surface area. You have one really big fiber and you split that into two smaller fibers. If you're putting force on that, you've just distributed the force over a larger surface area by dividing the fiber in two. So maybe there's an advantage there. Could it be has something to do with oxygen diffusion distances? You know, um, maybe if a fiber gets too big that it gets harder for the vasculature to provide oxygen to the center of a really big fiber. So maybe it's just more advantageous to have two smaller ones. Who knows? Hmm. You know, they're kind of interesting thoughts and things that I can't quite get to the bottom of yet, but that I'm interested in trying to pursue just because I think it's interesting biology. And I think it's, yeah. it's something that, you know, people don't really give a lot of uh, attention to, but that I think perhaps, I mean, talk about public health relevance. What if there's a way that we could harness this? You know, we know that as you get older, you lose muscle fibers. That's you know that's been shown in a lot of cross-sectional studies. You lose the number of muscle fibers. They become denervated and you lose them and they die and they go away. So what if you're able to split the fibers you have and then grow the ones that had split? Would you be able to recover muscle mass more quickly? Would you be able to have more muscle mass in older age if you were able to, to target and harness some of this biology? Potentially. Mm. I don't know for sure, but it would sure be cool to find out. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be uh... – some interesting research over the next couple of decades. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, uh, let's kind of dig into some rapid fire questions. That was sure. a wealth of information that um, I, I'm sure people are going to enjoy. And it's one of those things that uh, people are going to want to repeat twice and kind of take notes on this stuff because I feel like we got pretty deep on some of that. Yeah, I'm sorry if I if I went a little too hard. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's great. That's great. That's why you're here. Um, so if you, um, were a billionaire, right? Let's say you have a couple billion dollars yeah. and you have a staff of 40 people and these staff of 40 people are like top performers in whatever it is that you've taken them on for. And you wanted to use that to make some type of change or some type of impact. Um, what would you do with that? Oh, wow. 
what would I do with that? What would, so if I had a couple billion dollars and I had a bunch of highly motivated people, what would I do? That's yeah, the so question. Time, time, energy, money, it's not really an issue. It's like, okay, what, what comes up for you? What would you like to use that towards? God, I'd probably have to use it for some sort of philanthropical purpose, right? Like I can't imagine doing something selfish if you're having those resources at, at, my, at my disposal. I'd probably have try. I'd have to try to have someone dedicated to trying to grow that amount, that pot of money, so that never goes away, so that I can then just use it for philanthropical purposes for shoot helping people in Puerto Rico that are suffering from, uh, yeah. you know, all these terrible hurricanes and the earthquake in Mexico and all these awful things. Like, I can't imagine doing something more meaningful than that because. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a lame response, but that's the that's the best I can think of. That that to me would be the be all end all. I mean, if you could just go around helping other people, what's better than that? No, that's great. Uh, how about let's say you're still a billionaire. I'm still and a billionaire. You could give you could give two to three books to every person in the nation this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would they be? Boy, great question. Well, first one would obviously be the Bible. I think everybody can benefit from that. I think the second book would be maybe like guns germs and steel something like that so it's a nice yeah, science okay. book and a nice spiritual book sure nice okay i'll link that up in the show notes so people can uh check that out uh what would you say is um the best advice that you've ever received the best advice that i've ever received um i would say man just doing what you're passionate about. I know that's so lame, but it's true. Like, because the fact of the matter is, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, um, you're just not going to want to do it very much, you know. And the fact of the yeah. matter is, you get good at doing something by just doing it over and over and over again, and wanting to go back and do it more. Um, I mean, soul practice makes perfect thing, right? So I think I feel like that's a really important thing, and that's something that my father sort of instilled to me when I was in college is I didn't know what major I wanted. I didn't think exercise science would go anywhere. I couldn't see the path ahead of me. I thought it would, I just didn't have a vision. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that was just what he said. He's like, well, you know, you got to do something that you're, you're going to be into. It seems like you like this exercise thing. You don't know where it's going to go, but man, just, just put your head down, get into that and just be the best you can be at that and see where it goes. And now, yeah, here I am, you know, many years yeah. later, third year postdoc, you know, finish my PhD doing things that I think are meaningful and important. So, and that was purely just a passion thing uh, nothing else. Yeah. Like I didn't, honestly, I didn't really have a vision for myself or where I was going to go with it. I just knew that I liked what I was doing. And so, yeah. Yeah. How, how would you say that like, um, you know, you are studying stuff that's very, uh, it's gotten specific and kind of narrow. You have sure. this focus of, you know, these few different things. But then if you were to kind of zoom out and have this like bird's eye view of just the concept of science, right? And like why you got into that and how sure. you see what you're doing is kind of the bigger picture of like why science is important and why you're pursuing it. Um, what kind of comes up for you there? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I mean, you just got to understand that you're you're contributing to the body of knowledge. You're not, you know, you're, you're adding something. And the thing is, you don't always see the outcome of what you're adding there. In my mind, there's a lot of research out there that I, I look at it, and I see what people are doing. And I, I simply do not understand what the point of it is. 
but I don't discount yeah. it. I know how terrible that sounds because it's like, oh, I, I think my stuff's important, but yours isn't. Like, that's idiotic, <laughs> I know. But because they obviously see the importance in it. But, like, you know, I can't see the public health relevance or anything of what you're doing. But then I also know deep in my heart that there could be something, something that they never even thought that they were looking at that was, you know, that they, they never set out to look at or find. But some discovery comes out of whatever it is they're doing as however esoteric or silly it seems comes out of that that has a huge impact is because you're contributing mm-hmm. to this body of knowledge and it's this thing that's always evolving and it's always growing and it's all interconnected and like it, it takes on a mind of its own and you just can't really see what the impact of it's going to be i'm sure a lot of people when they publish what they call a landmark paper don't know at the time that's going to be a landmark paper or why it's so important. It's not till many years later that someone goes back perhaps and says, Oh wow, this person had it pinned, you know? And like, yeah. they were absolutely right. They developed this idea that now is the basis of something else that didn't, wasn't even related to that, you know, or it was related to it, but we couldn't see the relation. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of how I view what I'm doing is because I think it's cool, obviously, but I, I'm sure people who are listening to your show are going to think, man, this guy's a schmuck. You know, what's he even studying? What's important <laughs> in what he's doing? Um, yeah, and that's fine. You can feel that way, but uh, you might be right. But I think also that perhaps maybe we're all myself or somebody else I know is going to discover something that will have a huge impact that you never even anticipated. So that's that's something I think always to to keep in mind. Yeah, and it's like a, I think um, Dr. Galpin had a much clearer response around like. Uh, it, this what I'm trying to paraphrase right now, but it was like science is like admitting that we don't know everything and mm-hmm. then like exploring that ignorance in a sense. Yeah, for right? sure. Like we don't know and it's like we're continuing to discover things and then just when you think you have it all, then like a new technology kind of comes out to be able to measure something else and then now it's like it's this continuing, continually evolving uh, concept and I mean overall it, it contributes to public health and um is just relevant to our day-to-day lives in many ways. Um, but we just don't see it right up front. It's like coming in like these little, um, you know, little seeds that are planted that manifest into who knows what. Right. No, it's absolutely true. And it's, the dangerous thing is when you meet people that, that seem to know the answer to everything, that's, that to Mm -hmm. me is, is scary. You know, when I, when I talk to those people that they have an answer for everything, because the thing I've discovered as, further the path down the path I've gone in science is how little I really know. You know, you kind of, you kind of reach this point where you're like, wow, I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. And I need to get comfortable with saying, I don't know, you know, because people view that as a sign of weakness, but I admire the person that, you know, who's a perceived expert in a field and you ask them something that you think would be a simple answer. And they're just like, man, I don't know. It's like, man, that is so cool that you're humble enough and that you recognize that, you don't know something like that's that's really cool because people you know view experts you know as these infallible beings that seem to know all this stuff but like man like yeah we know a lot but about specific things but there's so many things we don't know and i just see this used chasm in front of me a lot of the time like man i just don't know any of this and it's but that's what keeps you going you know yeah but um yeah that's amazing. Um, is there something that you wish um, people would ask you more? Something you don't get asked enough about? And what I mean by that is like, you know, I like to relate this to an example of like a photographer, right? Is like when 
somebody who wants to get into photography is like, hey, what, what camera do you use, right? Mm -hmm. And then the photographer's like, like that's not the right question to ask. Like maybe he should be asking a question about the art itself, right? Then mm -hmm. how do I actually get better at taking pictures, for example? So that's kind of the context of what I mean is like, you know, is there something you feel like you wish people would ask you more, like the right type of questions? Sure. Yeah, I think, well, what makes an expert an expert, right? I guess it's sort of like as a, as a takeoff of what I was just talking about, but what makes an expert an expert in something? And I've, I found this more and more um, just kind of, cruising around the internet, reading what other people are saying uh, about, you know, muscle hypertrophy, whatever. Um, and in, in my mind, what I've come to realize is if you meet someone who's in an area studying something, they're probably going to know most of the papers that are relevant off the top of their head. You know, they've read this, they know this author, they know this, that, and the other. They've read that paper, they saw what got published last week, whatever. Um, but the thing is about that is anybody can do that. You know, I could tell you how to go on PubMed and set up weekly reminders of the papers that come out so that you get the abstract sent directly into your inbox. And every week you could have a huge inbox full of every paper that got published in the last week and you could scroll through these abstracts. Does that make you an expert? It absolutely does not. That does not. Reading papers doesn't make you an expert. Knowing what the right papers are and knowing why they're the right papers, I think is mm. kind of what makes you an expert. Being able to critically evaluate something, being able to understand the methods, being able to understand the study design of a study and why it makes it weak or strong, that in my mind is what makes an expert because I see a lot of times people who aren't qualified talking about papers and research in a way that um, is misrepresenting it. And just mm. because they've published something or just because they've written something that has 150 citations on the topic, unfortunately does not make them an expert on the topic. And yeah. I think that's something that I wish people would, would realize more and would, would seek out people in an area that are qualified to comment on things because, um, that's, I think becomes kind of dangerous, you know, just, just enough knowledge to be dangerous. You know what I mean? But to, I guess to play my own devil's advocate a little bit, the other thing is to understand is that scientists are humans. They're people, they're fallible. They have their own biases. They have, you know, sometimes they have agendas, um, in their research and just in their message in general. Um, and that's an important thing to keep in mind is, you know, science is this awesome thing that's self-correcting and it's, um, it's a pursuit of knowledge and it's, it's great. And science in and of itself is awesome. Unfortunately, science is conducted by scientists and scientists, okay. um, they make mistakes and they, they bend the truth and they don't always do the right things. And unfortunately that's, it's, it's an industry like any other. And I don't think people really realize that, you know, they think, Oh, you're a scientist. You much know everything. I bet you, your data is great. And it's like, yeah, you know, maybe it is, but maybe it's not, you know, like yeah. what are you dealing with here? You know? <laughs> so it's, right. um, so that, that's something I think I wish there was more conversation around, you know, because yeah. I think it gets lost on people. Um, yeah, science is a it's, it's a crazy thing to be a part of. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you coming on and, and dropping, uh, you know, tons of knowledge. And I'm sure in the future we can have you back on and we can kind of dig a little bit deeper into you know, specific areas, especially as your research continues to kind of evolve and you uncover more things, it would be awesome to have your insight on a lot of this stuff, um, considering it's an area that you have really dedicated a lot of time, energy and focus to. Sure. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. And 
yeah, this is cool. I hope you keep doing what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, where can we kind of follow along with your journey? Uh, is there any place that people can kind of um, get in touch with you or just kind of keep up with what you're up to? Sure. Yeah, no, you can. Uh, well, you can always reach out to me directly uh, via email if that's uh, something you want to do. My uh, my email address currently is uh, kmu236 at g.uky.edu. Um, so if you want to interact with me directly, that's one way to go. You can find me on Instagram, Kevin Murak, PhD. Um, and also I have a research gate, but I don't know how many people actually are actually have research gates, but it's kind of like Facebook for researchers. It's right. super nerdy, but it's actually a good way to get papers. And if you want to interact directly with, with, uh, with people, you can do that. And so it's actually a really good resource. And if you're even remotely interested in reading science papers, it's a, it's kind of a must have in some, in some ways so you can just get things a lot easier. But, um, especially if you're not associated with the university, it makes things a little easier, but, um, so you can get at me on there too. So those are probably the, the three different avenues. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'll get all that linked up in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I appreciate you taking the time, tuning in and lending me your ears. Two things I want to leave you with before you head out. Number one, if you are a coach or gym owner, head over to theairbornemind.com and check out some of the free resources we have for you there. Myself and a clinical psychologist are partnering together to create a course called The Art of Connection Through Questions. It's something I've loved and studied and has fulfilled me for years. And to be able to finally put this together in a way that's going to help other coaches and gym owners uh, connect deeply with their clients is super fulfilling for me. So if that sits well with you, head over to theairbornemind.com and check it out. Number two leave a review on iTunes. It's the best compliment that you can give and it would mean the absolute world to me. But other than that, hope you enjoyed this one. Until next time.